So we want to continue with our uh, series in Christology, and I do pray that you have learned much in our series in Christology. I hope the one thing that you've learned or that you have noticed out of all of our teachings is there's more to know about Christ than him saving us. There's much more about our Christ than him being the redeemer of the elect. So I hope that you've, that you've good, you've gotten a good handle of the person of Christ and how we are to speak about Christ. And much of what is spoken about Christ in this present day, uh, is mixed with hair, uh, error, with, uh, heresy and with orthodoxy. Uh, depending on who you ask, who do you think Jesus is? You will get a myriad of different answers. Not necessarily what do you think Jesus has done, but who is he? Who is Jesus Christ? And many of the answers you will get is he is uh, the savior of men, uh, the savior of the world. He's the savior of the elect or relating to his person that he is God, that he is man. And then we stop there. He's God and he's man. But there's more to it than just saying that God or Christ is God and man. But how did he become God? Did he become God? Has he always been God? Those are questions that we have to ask. Does he derive his divinity from another one who is divine? Was he adopted by someone namely the father. And then based upon his adoption, he is divine. Or what about his humanity? When he took on flesh, does that mean that he merely came in a body? He had no human mind or no human soul. Or when we speak of the humanity of Christ, does that mean that Jesus Christ came in the appearance of man? He seemed to be man, but he wasn't man really. And how are we to relate these two natures, the human and divine, in the one person? How does one person operate in two natures? Isn't he just, isn't it better to say he's two natures and two persons? Since a person, um, since anyone who has a person has a nature. So when we, when we speak about Jesus Christ, there's more to than there's more to, to, to the, the God-man, Jesus Christ, than simply saying he is the God-man. There's more things we need to flesh out when we speak about Christ. And for the first 1,000 years after the apostolic age, meaning after the closing of the canon and the last prophet has spoken, the primary debates in the church were over two doctrines, the Trinity and the person of Christ. In fact, many have said that it is the Trinity and the Incarnation that are the most mysterious doctrines in all of Christianity. Those are the doctrines that we fully can't wrap our minds around. And in glory, we will never be able to wrap our minds around the Trinity and the Incarnation. And it just so happens that for the first thousand years of Christianity, give or take, the main topic, uh, there was no, there was no shortage of ink spilled 
over the Trinity and the person of Christ. So what we want to do this evening is we want to go back to the first seven centuries of the church and we want to revisit some of these heresies that were being put forth by various individuals. And you might say, well, what's the reason of going back and knowing about these false views? We already have the, the right view. As long as we know the right view, we don't need to worry about the false views. But saints, in our theology and even in life, uh, we don't ever want to be ignorant in the things that we know. There can be someone who's a sharp-dressed individual, namely Jehovah Witnesses who knock on your door, that might present to you a Christ, although it is a heretical Christ, might present to you a Christ that you might say, hmm, that sounds plausible. That sounds reasonable. Or you might have a nice-dressed uh, young man uh, in a bike <laughs> walking up to you and asking you, hey, do you know about the Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints. And if you do not know Christ and the various heresies that arose in the early church, then you might say, well, that Christ that the Mormons put forth seems plausible. It seems right. So we need to know what the early church thought of when they, when they were speaking and articulated the person of Christ. And much of what they were talking of, or when they spoke of the person of Christ, and how they articulated the person of Christ, was to combat false views of the person of Christ. So when we think about uh, the three Cappadocian fathers, when we think about Cyril of Alexandria, when we think about Athanasius, much of what they say about Jesus Christ is in response to what people have said wrongly about Jesus Christ. So we need to know what these people said wrongly about Jesus Christ. So you guys have a, a, a full, um, a full broad, broad information of, of the person of Christ, the right view and the wrong view. And heresy is not necessarily uh, the worst thing possible. It is for the heretics and for those who follow the heresy. But heresy is good for the church sometimes because it causes us to reevaluate what we think, how we think. When we consider a wrong view, it causes us to look back and say, let me examine everything that I know. And then based upon that wrong view, I can come to the conclusion of what the right view is. So let's look at some of the wrong views this evening. And um, I, I went to Office Max and I got everyone a copy of some of these heresies. Now, when you get them, don't automatically look at them because we won't get there yet. But there's there's um, there's about 25 in there. It's six pages long. And what you will see in that document is a list of seven Christological heresies, um, as well as at the very end, you will find the Nicene Creed and you will find the Chalcedonian or Chalcedonian Creed. OK, so. If everyone uh, can get one, and if we have extras, then we can give them to uh, the people at the Hungry Homeless. <laughs> that, that would be good for them. Um, don't be a heretic out here. So I hope that that document, I think that document will, will serve some purpose for us because uh, much of what's going to be said this evening is going to be seen, is going to be needed to be seen as well. Um, so... 
I hope that will be of some use to you and you'll be able to expand on some of those heresies. Now, I've been saying that word heresy. Um, hey, Brother Anthony, can you give me my water in my, uh, in my bag back there? <clears throat> I've been saying the word heresy. And many of you know already what that word is. Um, but if we were to ask, or someone was to ask you, what is heresy? What is heresy? What would you say? And I think the standard answer would be anything that is wrong. But on based off what standard, though? How is it wrong? Based off what standard? And when we consider heresy, heresy is aberrant teaching. It's aberrant teaching, meaning that heresy is anything, and this is not in your notes, but heresy is anything that departs from core Christian teaching. That's what heresy is. Heresy is anything that departs from the cores, the core doctrines of Christianity. In other words, heresy is any teaching that goes against what Paul tells Timothy, the pattern of sound words. That's what heresy is. And a lot of times, guys, we can fall into the trap of putting the label on something that is that is an error and saying that's heresy. We we need to be we need to know exactly what heresy is um and and understand what heresy is. There is a difference between heresy and error. There's a vast difference. Let me give you an example. Uh the Presbyterians, those who baptize babies, pedo baptists, we've been learning a lot about that. Uh, those great men um, when they baptize their babies, we do believe that they are in sin. But what they are doing is not necessarily heretical. It's not heretical. Or when we consider um, something like baptismal regeneration, which means that in order to be saved, you have to be baptized. That's heresy. Or when someone says, that uh, a oneness Pentecostal who denies the Trinity. Well, they're heretics. That's not error. That's heresy. Someone who denies the deity of Christ. They are heretics. Someone who denies the true humanity of Christ. They are heretics. So heresy is the choice to abandon the widely accepted teaching on an essential doctrine and embrace one's own viewpoint. It's to ignore what uh, the Bible says, what the pattern of sound words are in the Bible, uh, what men throughout church history have said, and say, no, I see it this way. This, saints, is, on con- is in contrast to orthodoxy. And I'm sure many of you have heard that word orthodoxy before, but orthodoxy is the, the opposite of heresy. Orthodoxy is right teaching. It's anything that is in line with the established, agreed upon, and time-tested theology of the historic Christian faith. Orthodox is anything, any doctrine, that is in line with the established, agreed upon, and time-tested theology of the historic Christian faith. In other words, is anything that goes that is in line with historic Christian faith. Anything that's in line with with the historic Christian faith. 
And, and let me just say this. The Roman Catholics is not the historic Christian faith. The, the Eastern Orthodox are not the historic Christian faith. They went left. We who are Protestants, who are descendants of the reformers, we trace our lineage from Calvin to Luther to, to the three Cappadocian fathers to Cyril of Alexandria, all the way down to the Apostle Paul, all the way down to Abraham. We hold to the historic Christian faith. I just want to say that so you don't think, well, what about Catholics? They hold to some essential things, but but they are not the historic Christian faith. We are the true church. And yeah, they can say the same thing about themselves, but they are in error as when they do. But what are some of the Orthodox Christian doctrines? Well, it's the Trinity, the true divinity and humanity of Christ is, a, is an Orthodox doctrine. The deity of the Holy Spirit is an Orthodox doctrine. Uh, the five solas is an Orthodox doctrine. The resurrection of Christ, the return of Christ those are historic orthodox uh, doctrines. Those are things, saints, that you must believe. Those are the things, and we can we can do the we can talk we can go all night about talking about different orthodox doctrines that one must believe. But now, how does this relate to the person of Christ? When we speak about the person of Christ, there is no gray areas. There is no areas where we can budge on. We must get every aspect of our Christology right with respect to the person of Christ. With respect to the person of Christ. Now, here are a few things that we cannot budge on. We cannot budge on the true divinity of Christ. We cannot say that Jesus Christ is half God. Or he was adopted as God. We cannot say that. We, we cannot budge on the true humanity of Christ. We cannot say that he is like human, but not really human. We have to say that he is true man. The third is we have to, we cannot budge on Christ is one person with two natures. Not one person with one nature, and this one nature is mixed in with human and divine. Or he's two persons with two natures. He's one person with two natures. We cannot budge on that. We cannot budge on the fact that these two natures are never mixed or confused. We cannot budge on that. We cannot budge on Jesus Christ is born of a virgin. A true virgin. We cannot budge on that. We cannot budge on Jesus Christ is the eternal son who is consubstantial with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And when I say consubstantial, what that means is of the same substance or essence with the Father. And what that means is all of what it means to be God, the Father possesses. He has by nature. All of what it means to be God, the Spirit has by nature. In the same way, all of what it means to be God, the Son possesses by nature. Simple as that. And seventh, Jesus is sinless. We cannot budge on the true sinlessness of Christ. Our confession nicely summarizes the person of Christ in chapter 8, paragraph 2. Here's what it says. 
the Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of one substance and equal with him who made the world, who upholdeth and governeth all things he hath made, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her, and the power of the Most High overshadowing her, and was so made by a woman of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham and David, according to the Scriptures, so that the two whole perfect and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person, without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Saints, this is what it sounds like to have an orthodox view of the person of Christ. That's what that sounds like. And if you look at your notes um, in, in your, in your, in your um, document there, what you will see at the very last two pages is you'll see the Nicene Creed and you'll see the Chalcedonian Creed. Two creeds that were vital in the development of the deity of Christ and also the, the one person of Christ uh, subsisting or having two natures. And when we consider our confession of faith, chapter two, 8, paragraph 2, it's really a summary of those two creeds. When you, when you boil it down to what our confession is saying, they are building upon what they said in Nicaea, what they said at the Council of Ephesus, what they said at the Council of uh, Constantinople, what they said at Chalcedon. They are following the pattern of sound words, and they're just building upon and articulating it more um, who the person of Christ is. But that's what an orthodox view of the person of Christ sounds like. And I would say, if you were to ask me, what should I study in, in trying to understand the person of Christ? I would say, read chapter 2, or read chapter 8, paragraph 2 in our confession, and, and, and try to hone in on every single word that, our, that, that the, the, the framers of our confession is putting forth. And when you do, you will have an orthodox, biblical, and creedal uh, right understanding of the person of Christ. Now, what about the wrong views of the person of Christ? And now we're going to get into our notes. What about the wrong views of the person of Christ? What are the heresies that have developed throughout the centuries that have caused the church to come together and formulate what you have in your notes, the Nicene Creed or the Chalcedonian Creed? How did those creeds come about? Or those creeds, saints, were answers to heretics. There were answers to these heresies. So let's consider the first heresy. And you have seen your notes. It's Ebionism. Ebionism uh, put forth by those who are the Ebionites. And this heresy was around the first and second century. So this is very early in Christianity. Now, who came up with this heresy? And you'll see on your notes, it's really up for debate who the, were the, the exact, who is the exact person that was, that was putting forth this, this Ebionite theology of Christ? It's unknown, but 
Many think, and I think it's right to think, that they are the descendants of the Gnostics. And the uh, Gnostic saints were sort of the descendants of the Judaizers. So when, when we think about the Ebionites and where does it come from, it doesn't come from really one person, but it comes from a, 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 a train of thought um, that has been around. And these Ebionites have really just, have, have just built upon what the Gnostics have been saying and what the uh, Judaizers have been saying. And the reason why we say that they, they are or they might be the descendants of the Judaizers is because the Ebionites believed in, in, one to, in, one, in, in order for one to be saved, they had to keep the entire Mosaic law. But also, too, the Ebionites hated the Apostle Paul. They rejected everything Paul said, and also they rejected almost everything the New Testament said. They denied all of the Gospels. They denied everything, almost everything that the New Testament has said. So these guys were a a Jewish Christian group. And the Ebionites, they believed um, that Jesus Christ wasn't truly God. That's what they believed, that Jesus Christ wasn't truly God, but he was only a man who had unusual... Here's the language here, unusual, but not supernatural gifts. He had unusual, but not supernatural gifts. Here's what they thought. They taught that uh, Jesus was a perfect law keeper. And based upon Jesus' perfect uh, keeping of the law, due to his perfect observance of the law, Christ descended on Jesus by the Spirit at his baptism. So when you read of the baptism of Christ, when you see the Spirit descending upon him like a dove, they believe that that is Christ coming upon the man Jesus and anointing him with unusual powers. They deny the deity of Christ. They deny the virgin birth. And they deny the pre-existence of Jesus. That's the Ebionites for you. And much can be said about them, but really every heresy is building upon what the Ebionites believed, as far as those who deny the true deity of Christ. Now, you might ask, what are some of the scriptures that will help us refute uh, these heretics? And these scriptures are really going, and there's going to, there will be more, of course, there's more, but these scriptures really play a vital role in how we defend the deity of Christ. Many of you know, uh, John 1 1, which is a vital text in us defending the deity of Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we see that the one, this Word, who we know is the eternal Son, is with God. That's a, that, that, that right there is putting forth a distinction in persons. But also it says, and was God. So he shares in the same nature or substance with the Father. We read in John 1, 14, uh, the word says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
This one who is the only son from the father is the one who shares in the same nature as the father. We'll get more into that. Uh, another crucial or more crucial text, John eight fifty eight. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. A very crucial text in, in defending the deity of Christ. And when Jesus says, uh, before Abraham was, I am. Notice he doesn't say before Abraham w- was, I was, as if he was there, but he was created, or he might have just been there before Abraham was there. But he says, I am, and he's linking himself with that with that with the name of Yahweh remember when Exodus 3:14 when God is in the burning bush and Moses tells uh God in the burning bush who do I tell the people of Israel that who you are and he says tell them that I am he uh Yahweh or I am tells Moses his name so here Christ is identifying himself as that one true God Yahweh that he is truly divine John 10:30 I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. And saints, this is important to note. That word one in the Greek is hen. And what hen means in English is substance. So Jesus says, I and the Father are of the same substance. Not that we're one person. And I'm not even going to get into perichoresis. But we share in the same nature. Just as the Father is God, I, the Son, am truly God. Uh, John twenty twenty eight. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. It's funny, Muslims, in, in, when you try to tell them this text, they say, well, you shouldn't read it as one sentence, but you should read it as Thomas is saying, my Lord and my God. You know, the silly, the silly ways people try to ignore the true biblical authoritative witness of Scripture. Jesus here, Thomas is affirming the true deity of Christ, my Lord and my God. And last one, Philippians 2, 6, who though was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Who was in the form of God, who was God who is God. Jesus Christ is truly God. And these Ebionites, in their error, in rejecting the true divinity of Christ, when you reject the true divinity of Christ, then what Christ are you left with? You're left with just a mere man and trying to somehow take the biblical witness and and and, and, and speak about Christ in a way that's inconsistent with how the Bible speaks of Jesus Christ, how they speaks of his miracles, the way he spoke, um, how he identified himself. Just the, the ways that Christ identified himself alone is enough to prove the deity of Christ. So that was the error of the Ebionites, that they deny the deity of Christ. The second heresy we see is docetism, docetism. And this originated in the second century, and this word docetism um, comes from the Greek dokeo, which means to seem, to appear. Now, this is, this is a very strange heresy. 
Okay, so stay with me. They believe that Jesus was only a man, was only God and not man. And when people would look at Jesus Christ, it was an illusion. He seemed to be man, but he wasn't really man. In fact, there's a story that's told is when uh, the ascetics, when they would speak about uh, Jesus Christ, when he would walk, when he would, let's say Jesus Christ walks on a beach. When the disciples uh, would look behind Jesus Christ, they wouldn't see footprints. So it was an illusion. He seemed to be man, but he wasn't really man. He was he was only God. And how, how, how did they get to this? Their, their reasoning comes from a Platonic philosophy that says all matter is evil. You see that? In, you'll have that in your notes. That all matter is inherently evil. Inherently evil. The reasoning is this, that God did not create the world. And stay with me here. God did not create the world. So who created the world? Who created human beings? Well, they believe that a, 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 a lesser being, a demigod, uh, a lesser God, a little God, created material, created this fallen universe, and created us. So God did not create the world because he's too good. But a, a demigod, a, a, a lesser God, a little God created the world, and this little God was evil. So by him creating the world, creating human beings, we are evil. We're not evil because of Adam's sin. We're evil because these demigods created the world. That's why we are evil. That's why matter is evil. So our spirit then, they believe that our spirit is, is we, we share the same spiritual spirit as God. And our problem is we are trapped in our bodies. And the one thing that we need more than anything in this life is we need to be freed from our bodies because it's our bodies material that is keeping us from having peace. I know it's weird. And side note, that's a lot what Scientologists believe, but uh, we are, we need to be, we need to be freed from our bodies because, because our bodies are evil. Our bodies uh, need to be redeemed. So salvation really, really is about our escape from the bondage of our material existence. Our souls, our spirits need to be freed. Our bodies is a thing that needs to go away because it's evil. Very weird, right? Very strange. But that's what they believed. So so this idea of God, who is good, assuming flesh, that's evil, is impossible in their thinking. The, The two can't go together. Because God is too good, and anything that's material is bad. God cannot be associated with matter. Also, the, the, those ascetics believe that God couldn't suffer. And if we say that uh, Christ suffered, then he's truly not divine. Um, but we don't say that Christ suffered according to his divinity. We say that Christ suffered according to his humanity. So who is Jesus in this heretical view? Jesus was the human vehicle for this heavenly messenger Christ who was sent by God to rescue the soul from the body. That's who Jesus was. Jesus was the human vehicle for this heavenly messenger Christ who was sent by God to rescue the soul from the body. That's who Jesus was. 
He came to rescue our souls from our body. That is why when Paul speaks to those um, Christians um, in Colossians, that Christ was raised bodily, they were shocked. Because also, Platonic thought had crept into that church as well. So the fact that Christ was raised bodily, and we will be raised bodily as well, was a shocker for those whom Paul was refuting. But if we were boil, if we were to boil down the heresy of doceticism to a nutshell, it's simply this, guys. It's a denial of Christ's bodily humanity. Yes, it's a denial of the true humanity of Christ, but also extending to that, it's a denial of the true body of Christ, a true body of Christ. Here is what one early writer, uh, Ignatius, writes. And saints, uh, Martin Luther was like this as well when he would write, but those patristics, those men, the early church fathers, they did not hold any punches when they spoke about heresies and, 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 and those things. But he says here, Now he suffered all these things for our sakes, that we might be saved. And he suffered truly, even as also he truly raised up himself, not as certain unbelievers maintain. He's speaking about the docetics. That he only seemed to suffer, as they themselves only seemed to be Christians. So if you think that Christ only seemed to suffer, then you only seem to be Christian. You're not really of the faith. And as they believe, so shall it happen unto them when they shall be divested of their bodies and be mere evil spirits. How do we combat this heresy? Two verses. Uh, John and 1 John 4, verses 2 through 3. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. 1 John 4, verses 2 through 3. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, and of which you have heard that is coming, and now it is already in the world. So it seems like this heresy didn't just originate in the um, in the second century, but but people were already coming up with this conclusion that he only seemed to be man. But what does John say? Those who believe that are antichrists. They're preaching a false gospel. They do not understand Jesus Christ. Here's another one. Second uh, John. And, and, I, and I got this one wrong, but Second John 7, I believe, for many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh, this is the deceiver of the Antichrist. This is the deceiver of the Antichrist. And I believe that is, I'll get it, I'll get it for you later, but that's what it is. Pastor Antonio will know. Um, what do we see here? We see that the error with the docetics is that Jesus Christ wasn't truly human. That Jesus Christ wasn't truly human. And saints, we needed, and we're going to be expanding upon this more, but we needed one who was truly human. Jesus Christ didn't, didn't come in the flesh and, and merely appear to be in the flesh, if that even makes sense. But he was truly in the flesh. 
There was nothing illusional about Jesus Christ. There was nothing about Jesus Christ that would trick anyone. But he was truly the God-man. He was truly the God-man. Okay, let's move on. The next heresy, adoptionism, uh, a.k.a. dynamic monarchianism. Okay, now in order to understand adoptionism, we need to understand what monarchianism is. And monarchianism basically is the heresy that says or that puts forth and that overemphasizes the oneness of God. It's an overemphasizing uh, of the oneness of God. And these, these, these uh, monarchians, by overemphasizing and stressing the oneness of God, they deny the threeness of God. So since, since God is one, and since it is the Father who is one, his essence or his nature cannot be shared with two persons. Because that would mean that there's three gods. Of course, we don't say that in Trinitarian theology, right? We say that there is one being. And these three persons share the one being, the one essence. The essence is undivided. But so in, 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 in moving from that heresy, uh, monarchianism, it's easy to understand adoptionism. And what we have in adoptionism is simply this, that Jesus was a righteous man who became Christ or God by adoption. He wasn't eternally God, but he became God by adoption. And this adoption either took place at his baptism or his resurrection. There's some that even say that at his baptism, Jesus became the Christ and then after the resurrection, he was invited to incorporate himself in the Godhead. But the Godhead is not one with the same with, they don't share, so the Spirit and the Son don't share in the same essence of the Father. They're adopted as sons, just as if, and, and I'm not throwing any shade or, or anything at those who have adopted children, but Adopted children don't share necessarily in the same uh, stuff that you do. The same DNA that's running in blood that's running in your veins is not running in your in your one that's adopted. The same way with uh, adoptionism here. So if we were to boil down what the adoptionists put forth, is they deny the preexistence of the son. They deny the preexistence of the son. And saints, we must be clear on this. That there was never a time when Christ wasn't the Son. That's important to note. There was never a time when Christ, who is the eternal Son, wasn't the Son. Christ was not adopted as the Son by the Father in time, but was eternally begotten from His Father. He was not adopted by the Father in time, but was eternally begotten from the Father. Meaning the Son is the natural offspring of the father he's the natural offspring of the father just as the father has always been the father there has never been a time when the father was without his son just as there was never been a time when the father wasn't the father there's never been a time when the father was without his son and the problem with adoptionism is this if christ is adopted as god's son then 
he's not truly God and he's unworthy of our worship. If Christ was adopted as God's son, that he's not worthy of our worship. He's not, if he's not of the same substance of the father, then saints, we have no reason to call upon the name of the Lord. He is not divine. And mind you, he's incapable of saving us. We'll get there when we speak about Arianism. How do we rebuke this? John 17, 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. How does someone who doesn't believe that the Son preexisted creation explain this text? The, the Son says to the Father, Glorify me with the glory that I had. Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existence. And, and it's important to note that it wasn't as if the Father had his own glory and the Son had his own glory. But they shared in the same glory. The Father and the Son are of the same substance, and the Son is preexistent. He was before Abraham, he was before you and I. He was before the creation of the world. So that's important to note, saints, that Jesus Christ, who is the eternal son, and even the way we even say that, eternal son, he's always existed. Words have a meaning. And just like when we speak about uh, uh, eternal generation or eternal begotten, and we'll get there when we speak about Arianism, which is the next one, Arianism. Arianism, and, you, and many of you, I'm sure, have heard of Arianism before. Arianism originated in the 4th century. And Arianism was the first major heresy that threatened the church. And the reason or why uh, Arianism almost dominated the church is because its uh, founder, Arius, was a very charismatic man. But also he knew people in high places. He knew how to rub shoulders with those who had great influence and he was able to articulate his view of Jesus Christ in a way that would convert them. In fact, it's been said that uh, Constantine, when he was baptized, he was baptized in the name of Christ in a theology that's according to Arius. So when we think about Arianism, Arianism was a founded, by, uh, uh, founded by a man named Arius, who was very influenced by the heresy of adoptionism. Okay? Now, the reason why, or the reason why, again, that this heresy was, was almost dominated the church is because he knew people in high places. And when, of course, when you know people in high places, you know how to, to work your, work the room. You know how to get your porn across and all that. So what was the heresy of Arianism? The, the, the heresy of Arianism was this, that the father created the son. That was it. That the Father created the Son. Um, it is only the Father who is eternal. Remember, adoptionism. It is the only the Father who is eternal. Therefore, the Son and the Spirit had an origin. Just as you and I, right? We have an origin. We come from someplace. We have no, not always existed. The Spirit and the Son are not preexistent, but they have their origins in the Father. The Father created 
the sun. In fact, Arius would say that the sun is the first and highest of all of God's creation. And what did the sun create? The spirit. So, so these, the, 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 our, we, what we know as the triune God in Arius's view created themselves. Um, only the father is uncreated. Arius would, would say that and famously say that there once was a time when he was not. And if you study Arianism, that's a, that's a famous saying that he would, that he would shout out and he would sing. There once was a time when he was not. There once was a time when the sun was not. Think about that. The, the one whom we worship, the eternal son, Eris is putting forth there once was a time when he didn't exist. And then the father created him. Heresy. Um, but when Arius did believe that uh, the son, Jesus Christ, that he was divine in some sense. In some sense, he was divine, but not in the way that you and I define the son as being divine. He was divine, but his divinity derived from the father. His divinity derived from the father because he was created by the father, thereby making him divine. So he was like God, but not really like God, if that makes any sense. Um, in a nutshell, what is Arius putting forth? He puts forth that the Son is the first and highest of all created beings. He believed that the Son is not worthy of divine worship necessarily as the Father is. Um, and in a nutshell, Christ is less than God, but he's more than a man. He's less than God, but he's more than a man. Now, why do we believe, or, or why did Arius believe this? You might say, how did he come to this? That the Son was created? Doesn't make any sense. In addition to his overemphasis on the oneness of God, he read verses in the Bible that speak of the Son who is begotten. And he concluded that the Son was a created being. So we read John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son. Ares would say, well, there you go right there. He's begotten. And we all know that in order for one to be begotten, it means that he's created. And all begotten, anyone that's begotten, it happens in time and space. So the Bible is plainly saying that Jesus is begotten. He's created. The Son is created. The problem with that type of thinking, saints, is the Bible never speaks of the Son being begotten by the Father in time, but in eternity. The Bible never speaks about the Son being begotten in time, but in eternity. Nor does this Bible speak of this eternal begetting evolving the Father creating out of nothing the Son. The Bible doesn't speak of the Father bringing forth the Son out of nothing. That's not what eternal begottenness, or more technically speaking, eternal generation means. That's not what that means. When the Bible describes the Son as being begotten from the Father, it's using a human concept to describe an incomprehensible divine act. That's what that means. That's what, when, when the Bible says that the Son is begotten from the Father, it's using a human concept to describe an incomprehensible 
divine act that happens in eternity. The son is not begotten or brought forth after the manner of men. In other words, the son is not brought forth the way you were brought forth from your mother and father. The father's eternal generation of the son, the father's eternal begetting of the son is not analogous or in the same way to human procreation, but rather it's supernatural, it's incomprehensible, and it's eternal. And the Bible is clear that the son is eternal. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. We read already John 10, 30, uh, 31, I and the father and one. And saints, when we read more in John 10, 30, 31, what happens after the son or Jesus Christ says, I and the father are one? The Jews pick up stones to try to stone him. We are not to ignore the aftermath of when Jesus Christ would say these things. We are not never to ignore the responses of these men because it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a telltelling sign of they knew what Jesus was saying. It wasn't that Jesus was saying, yeah, I'm the father one. I am God. But he, he was saying something because not only he truly meant him, but he truly was it. He, he truly was God. Not that God is an it. I'm sorry. But he truly was God. So practically speaking, what's the problem with Arianism? The problem with Arianism is this, that an Arius Christ is incapable of saving us to the uttermost for our sins. An Arius Christ is incapable of saving us to the uttermost. If the Son was created and is less than God but more than man, then you have one who is incapable of saving us. That's the problem with Christ, with Arius is Christ. Saints, we needed a savior who was truly God, not one who was created by God. We needed one who was truly God. And you see, saints, Arius leaves us with a salvation that is accomplished not by God himself, but instead by human achievement, by an elevated created being who by good works reconciled us to the father. And saints, I say that that's a salvation that cannot save. That type of salvation cannot bring us peace with the Father. So that's the problem with Arianism. The fact that the Bible speaks of this eternal beginning, as this beginning, as uh, begetting from the Father to the Son, as an eternal divine act that's incomprehensible. And if you want more on that, then I did a sermon on eternal generation. You can listen to that. But also, when the Bible speaks of this eternal beginning, it's speaking about the divinity of Jesus Christ or the, uh, the Son. It's saying less about this divine act, but it's saying more about this one who is Son is of the same substance of the Father. That's what, that's what the, the Bible is putting forth. Next heresy, Apollinarianism, uh, which is founded by Apollinarius, now, Apollinarius believed in the full deity of Christ, uh, yet in the incarnation, the Son took to himself an incomplete human nature. In other words, Christ had a human body, but he didn't have a human soul or mind. Very weird. And since 
And he believes that. And since the mind and the soul is so evil, Jesus could not have assumed a human mind or soul or else he would be a sinful man. So that's the logic behind Apollinarius, that since the mind and the soul is so wicked inherently, Jesus could not have assumed a human mind and a human soul. And if he did, then he would be a sinner. So what did he do? He simply took on a human body. That's it. He took on a human body. So in, in, in the, the heresy of uh, Apollinarianism, Jesus Christ is truly God, but not truly man. Apollinarius taught that the two natures of Christ, the two, these two whole perfect natures cannot exist in one person. It would be impossible. It would, it would be impossible to, for Christ to have a, have a human mind coexist with a divine mind. And a human soul coexists with a divine soul. That's what we believe. But Apollinarius said, nope. He was strictly God who took on a human body. And if there was anything human about Christ, it is his body. But he was, he was truly God. And when we consider the, um, the heresy of Arianism, what it really is, it's a denial of the true humanity of Christ. And saints, when we speak of Christ with respect to our salvation, it was of necessity that the Christ be truly man in order for us to be redeemed. It was of necessity that the Christ, the Messiah, be truly man in order for us to be redeemed. As Gregory of Nazianzus has said, what is not assumed is not healed. What is not assumed is not healed. If Jesus Christ or if the eternal son only assumed a human body, then only our human bodies are redeemed. But if Jesus Christ didn't assume a human mind and a human soul, which we know as a rational soul, he didn't redeem our minds and our soul. Then he's an incom- or he, his salvation is incomplete. He doesn't save us to the fullest. He doesn't save us to the max. And saints, in order for the whole man to be redeemed, it is the whole man who needed to be assumed in order for the whole man to be redeemed. The whole man needed to be assumed again. Greg of Nazianzus, what is not assumed is not healed. What is not assumed is not healed. We needed Christ to be, we needed the eternal son to be truly man in order for us for to be truly saved. Uh, the, the next heresy that you see in your notes is the heresy of Eutychianism. Uh, Eutychianism. <clears throat> this developed around the 5th century, and what Eutychius uh, believed is that the two natures of Christ are mixed together. So you have the divine nature of Christ, and you have the humanity or the human nature of Christ, and these two natures are mixed together to make one nature sort of like a supernature. That was the heresy of of Eutychianism. And saints, 
this goes against everything we know about the nature of God, doesn't it? When we speak about God, we think of God as simple. We think of God as incomprehensible. We think of God as uh, impassable, immutable. And Christ is those things according to his divine nature. But if we say that his divine nature is mixed with his human nature, then that means that when Christ suffers according to his divine na- human nature, he suffers also according to his divine nature. So when he suffers according to his human nature, he suffers also according to his divine nature. Does that make sense? If the two natures are mixed together. And if that's the case, if God can suffer, as, as one pastor has said, then we don't need an incarnate Christ. If God could suffer, then what's the point of God becoming man? It doesn't make any sense. That's one of the errors of uh, Eutychianism. And when we consider Eutychianism, it really flies in the face of what we mean and what the church has confessed concerning the two natures of Christ and how they remain distinct from one another. The person acts according of Christ. The person of Christ acts according to both natures. But these natures are never confused or mixed, meaning Christ, according to his human nature, doesn't do divine things. And I know you might say, well, we spoke about the Holy Spirit uh, indwelling and empowering the human nature of Christ to do these things that it seemed they seem to be divine things, but Christ, without the Holy Spirit, according to his human nature, couldn't do those things. So Christ, according to his human nature, in and of itself, does not do divine things, as well as the divine nature of Christ, does not do human things. Right, the, the Christ, according to his divine nature, he doesn't suffer. He's not, he's impassable, right? Uh, he's, he's, he's omnipresent. He knows all things. But Christ, according to his human nature, he does suffer. He does change. He doesn't know all things. And the problem with Eutychianism is when you blend these two natures together, then you have the human doing divine things and the divine doing human things. That can't happen. We can't have a Christ who is, who is, who is, mixed with two natures, because again, then that means that the divine can suffer. The last heresy, Nestorianism. And Nestorianism is, out of all the heresies, the heresy that we can take the rest of next year in talking about. Because out of all of them, it is a very complex heresy. But when we speak about uh, Nestorianism, in a nutshell... Nestorianism is the belief that Jesus Christ existed as two persons, the man Jesus and the divine son of God, rather than one unified person. Because he believed that a nature, in order for one to have a nature, it must be connected with a person. So if Christ is, has two natures, then how is he one person? That doesn't make any sense. If he's two natures, then he must be two persons. I know, it doesn't make any sense at all, and it it goes against everything we believe concerning what a person is, right? But that's what he believed, that Christ is two persons. 
Um, and when we speak about the hypostatic union, we believe that the two natures were joined in the one person of Christ. Nestorius believed that the two natures are not only distinct, but so separate that in Christ, there's two persons. We know it as a split personality. There's two persons in Christ. So when you speak about Christ, you have to speak of him and the other. You can't speak of one person. You guys speak of him who is, who is a, who has a dual personality, one divine, one human. In other words, Nestorius didn't like the idea that Jesus was both man and God at the same time. That was an impossibility for Nestorius. So he put forth that Jesus must have really have been two separate beings, a human one and a God one at the same time wrapped together. Very weird, right? And I, again, it will take, it will take us the rest of next year to even untangle all of what Nestorius thought and what it means to have to be a person and, and all of that. And saints, when we consider the error of Nestorianism, um, the error of it is yes, his, his, his rejection of what the church fathers have thought of concerning what a person is. But also, saints, it's his lack of understanding that this one person, Christ, acts through two natures. It's not two persons acting through two natures. It's one person acting through two natures. And as we conclude, and when we consider, uh, and if you have more uh, questions on Nestorianism, talk to me after. As we conclude from considering these various heresies, you can see that each one of these heresies, they do two things. They either reject the true humanity of Christ or reject the true deity of Christ. That's what they do. And, and they do so in elaborate ways. We have those who reject the divinity of Christ, Arianism, Adoptionism, Ebionism, or those who deny the true humanity of Christ, uh, the Docetics, Apollinarius, uh, uh, and the Eutychians. And saints, as we close from this uh, lesson, you might ask, is this simply head knowledge for us to know? And when a Mormon comes to our door, or when a Jehovah Witness comes to our door, or when a Muslim comes to our door, or when any of these heretics come to our door, um, we are able to, to, to brush up on our Christology and our, and our belief in our, the person of Christ and who he is. But saints, this has massive practical application for our lives. Here's two. The first application is the importance of being orthodox and how we articulate the person of Christ. The importance of being orthodox in how we articulate the person of Christ. Christ is the eternal son of God. Christ is the eternal son of God, not a created being. Christ is not the eternal or the son is not a created being. Uh, Christ is not a man who by good works elevated himself to divinity. He wasn't, he didn't do good works. He didn't do, uh, he wasn't, uh, he didn't obey the law perfectly and based upon his obedience, he became God. But saints, he is truly God. And he is this true God, Christ, the second person of the Trinity, 
is the one who assumed a true body and rational soul. He is one person with two distinct but never separate natures. He was born of a virgin and is truly sinless. And saints, we must get the person of Christ correct. In order for us to have a proper understanding of the work of Christ. You see, the work of Christ is perfectly, is to perfectly harmonize with the person of Christ. We are not to divorce Christ's person and work, something that the Roman Catholics have failed to do, something that the Eastern Orthodox have failed to do. We stand, saints, condemned before holy God, the only true God of the entire universe, and the only solution for us to be redeemed is if God himself acts to save in order to satisfy his own righteous requirements. Augustine has said beautifully that you pay your own debts off. It is God who comes and saves his people. The work of the salvation is a triune work that the Father and the Spirit are involved in the work of salvation. But it is the second person of the Trinity who was given the peculiar task to become incarnate. In order for man to be fully redeemed, we needed the divine Son to assume our human nature into his own person. So he's not two persons. He's one person. The eternal son assumed a human nature into his own person so that he can represent us and act on our behalf as our new covenant head and substitute. This is what we needed. We needed one who was truly God and truly man. Truly man to represent us and truly God to add infinite worth and value to that redemption. The second application that we can walk away with is rejoicing in our triune God for preserving his church as heretics have tried to distort the biblical teaching of the person of Christ. Praise God for his promises. Praise God that he's unchangeable. Praise God that he has always been with his church. He's never left his church, saints. And when we, if, if we do more of a study on uh, church history, you will see that each one of these heresies have been condemned. Each one of these ideas and thoughts concerning Christ have been condemned by various councils and various men throughout the centuries as heresy. You see in your notes, in 325, the first ecumenical council, the first universal council in Nicaea, it condemned Arius and clarifies the dogma of Christ's divinity. It put forth that Jesus Christ is the eternal divine son. Do you guys have any notes? In 381, at the Council of Constantinople, they further expand the Nicene Creed by defining the Holy Spirit as divine and also condemned Apollinarius' heresy that Jesus lacked a complete human soul, 
They said, no, Jesus Christ did not simply come as a body, but he came with body, assumed a body and rational soul. He had a human mind and a human soul. In in 431, the Council of Ephesus defines Christ as the incarnate word of God and proclaims Mary, the Theotokos, the Godberry, condemning the teachings of Nestorius. In five, in 451, at the Council of Chalcedon, one of the greatest achievements of the church, they, def- they define Christ as having both a divine and human nature in one person. You have that, uh, you have that creed in your notes at the very end. In 553, the second council of Constantinople confirms the Christological and Trinitarian doctrine against Nestorians. You see, saints, in, in, in 680, and, and we can go on and on, all of these councils condemn each one of these heresies that men throughout the years have tried to put forth to distort our Christ. Each one of these heresies, and, and God has raised up men throughout the years like the three Cappadocian fathers, like Athanasius, who went against the entire world, so to speak, when they were saying that, no, the son is of, the, of, of a similar substance of the father. He is like the father, but he is, but he is not the father in the, same, in the sense of he is not truly God. Athanasius said, no, the son is truly God against every single one who went against his way. Cyril of Alexandria. We have men like Leo the Great and Maximus the Confessor. These men who have, who have, who God has used to put forth the person of Christ in a way that is clear, in a way that is biblical, in a way that follows the pattern of sound words. Praise God for his faithfulness to his church. And saints, when we leave and uh, when we leave this sermon and when we are walking to our cars and when we're considering the, the, the lesson for today, let us consider what Christ says to Peter in Matthew six eighteen. After Peter has confessed the right Christ, that he is the, the Messiah, that he is the son of the living God, what, is, what does Christ say? He says, and I say to you that you are Peter, And upon this rock, upon this confession, upon this confession of the true Christ, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Based upon this true confession of this Christ, who is truly God and truly man, based upon this confession, Peter, I will build my church and no demon and no devil and no hell will ever overpower it. Praise God for his promises, saints. Praise God for his faithfulness. And saints, as we end, that that promise there still applies till this day. It didn't end after the first 11 or the first thousand years of the Christian church. But that promise applies ever so more in this present day. Let's pray.